Hey, this is Doug. You've made it through, well, by the end of today, you'll have made it through 100 episodes of Journey Through Scripture. As I always say, it's my delight to provide these for you. And I waited until 100 episodes um, to put this out there because I really want to say this to the people who are investing and finding value in uh, this ministry that uh, the Lord laid on my heart. Um, I didn't want to just say this to people who, you know, for whatever reason, only listen to a few episodes or or even to a couple dozen. Uh, But if you're at episode 100, chances are you're in it for the long run, and I'm glad and thankful that you are. One thing that I don't think I've mentioned is that Journey Through Scripture is a personal ministry for me. I am a pastor at a church um, in New Jersey called Emergence, which I love, and I love the people there. Um, But for several reasons, I've kept um, Journey Through Scripture as not part of my pastoral ministry there. It is something that I do on my free time, and it's become quite a labor of love to me. It is... um, you know, it, it, it takes a, a lot of time preparing and then recording the episodes and everything. And I'm just uh, sticking this in here at the beginning of this episode, and I'm, I'm not going to inundate you with um, uh, on every single episode with this or anything like that, um, but I will put the occasional reminders that um, I have opened a, a Kofi account for uh, donations. All of the equipment that I use is my own. I pay for the web service out of pocket to do the um to do the podcasting and everything and um if 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 you find value in this you know i would ask you to consider maybe making a donation uh, to this ministry don't feel bad if you can't of course uh, but if that's something that you feel that uh, the lord might lay on your heart as a way uh, to say thank you or to bless me and my family i do plan on keeping this going uh, for the indefinite future, I'll probably have a um, an epilogue episode after the 365th to just to you know to say where things are going going to go um, in the future with this. But yeah, so in in the uh, if if you're interested in making a donation and you could do one time or you could do monthly support, um, you know I've got a I've got a, a household of seven people, so this uh, you know it would definitely help me out. Uh, you'll find a link in the show notes to this episode and I'll keep, I'll put it, I'll start putting it in the show notes of all the episodes and probably every 10 episodes or so I'll mention it briefly to you uh, that that option is available. All right. Well, I'll stop babbling about this and uh, let you get into episode 100. And again, whether um, you're able to support me or not, uh, that's fine. I'm just grateful that you're on the journey with me. All right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, Day 100. Today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapters 13 and 14, Proverbs 9 verses 1 through 12, and Luke 13 verses 1 through 30. Okay, Deuteronomy 13. So Deuteronomy 13 presents a number of scenarios in which people uh, lead Israel astray to follow after other gods. So the first is a prophet or a dreamer of dreams um, who does this. And this person even comes doing signs and wonders. Uh, but if they do that and the God whom they are telling you to follow uh, is any other than Yahweh, then 
you are not to go after them. Um, the, the Lord, it says, is indeed testing you to see whether you will love him with your heart and your soul. Um, so God's people are not simply to be so impressed by someone doing extraordinary things, even things that could be categorized as signs and wonders. Um, a lot of strange things happen in the world, and people are sometimes purposely deceptive, or sometimes things are just beyond our understanding. And we have to be very careful, as God's people, what we infer from that, what we infer from an extraordinary event, a, a sign, a wonder, something uh, seeming to be miraculous, or uh, perhaps highly coincidental, or something like that. I often think that if, um, if, if all it takes for, say, Satan to deceive us, to lead us astray, is to orchestrate some kind of coincidence, or to, um, or to do something, or uh, that 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 we don't understand, that we can't otherwise explain. If that's all it takes to get us to go astray, then uh, we're in a lot of trouble. So we have to be more discerning than that. We have to realize that the core of what we believe is what God has revealed to us about himself or about and about his word. And, and what he has revealed is uh, to the Israelites at this point is, I am Yahweh, there is none beside me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship me with carved images or anything like that. And so you know that, that's the center. And nothing, not even a sign, or not even a wonder should be able to dislodge that, should be able to knock you or, or, or turn you from that. And in fact, if someone comes attempting to do that, then this is uh, one of the things that in Israel is to be held as a capital crime. This is something where the penalty is death. The idea is to, that you must purge this, this from your midst. And as I've mentioned in the past, we highlight the importance of what God is doing through Israel. This is not just the average establishing of of a nation or or, or people. Uh, this is God executing His plan to redeem humanity from sin and from death. And the one who would derail that in the most central, the most fundamental way, by uh, leading people astray after other gods is indeed um, guilty of the highest crime that Israel's law punishes. The same goes if uh, the next category maintains a close relative. Um, here the examples are given are brothers, the son of your, mo your mother, so a half-brother, the son of your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or a friend who is as your own soul, so not just relatives, but people really close to you. So even if someone really close to you, if they lead you or attempt to lead you to go after other gods, then the same thing. And um, and then finally, the situation is if, if these guys in a city, worthless fellows, um, sons of Belial, as it, uh, as it is in the Hebrew, um, if, if they're in a city and they, they draw the city away, and this city becomes idolatrous, a center for the worship of the other gods, it is actually to be treated as a Canaanite city. It is to be uh, put uh, under the ban, the harem, um, and and the the spoil and the plunder is is to be devoted to destruction as well. Okay, This isn't something you're supposed to be benefiting from or anything like that. Everything is devoted to the Lord. And um, the, the one phrase there, it says that it's to be burned in the town square, 
as and and the English Standard Version has as a, a burnt offering, um, and a couple commentators follow that. But I think it's important to note that that's not actually the language that is used here in verse sixteen. It's it's more that they are to be uh, burned thor- thoroughly. I just I just mentioned that because burnt offering is very specific. Um, language having to do with Israel's sacrificial system, and that's not actually uh, what um, we find there in the Hebrew text. Um, that's not to say that the English Standard Version is completely wrong or that uh, or that it can't be trusted. The, the logic is that uh, the idea of being burned entirely is indeed as you would burn a burnt offering, so that's why it makes its way into the translation. I just, um, you know, I, I, try, I try to be a little careful when uh, the even the English Standard Version, which tends to be very cl- stick very close to the Greek and Hebrew, uh, in fact departs a little bit from it. Okay. Um, also prohibited here <coughs> are things that we've seen before, the kind of uh, the the fashioning of uh, a, a certain way of cutting one's hair, apparently uh, for the dead, uh, with perhaps a, a a type of necromancy. Or or other kind of reverence of of dead ancestors. Uh, this this is uh, something that had religious meaning in Canaanite culture. You're not to do that. You're not to cut your hair or wear your hair like that. Uh, and then we get Deuteronomy's version of uh, the 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 food purity laws. So first of all, the uh, like animals from the herd, right? Land animals, um, as well as game. Um, the standards that we're familiar with in Leviticus, that for an animal to be clean, for you to be able to eat it, uh, it has to both part the hoof and chew the cud. So it has like a, you know, a hoof that parts, and then the, the cud chewing, as I explained back in Leviticus, is this very charming kind of regurgitation um, as part of the, the, the digestion happening in the mouth. That's what, that's what chewing cud is. Uh, go ahead and Google that. <laughs> Um, also, for the, the the things in the sea, if it has fish and uh, if it has fins and scales, then it is edible. If it does not have both those things, it is not. And um, these are, uh, as as I mentioned in Leviticus, it's it's sometimes a little bit ambiguous as to why um, certain things fall under the category of clean or unclean. Uh, it's very likely that there's more than one thing that would classify an animal as such. Uh, so. One of the things is that they they are kind of like out of place, so they 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 defy categories such as things that crawl in the sea as opposed to things that have scales and fins that swim. Those are it's like is it well is it a land animal or is it a fish? Um, so yeah, this uh that's that seems to be one of the justifications. Uh, hearkening back, as I explained in Leviticus, probably to the order in creation that everything kind of has its place in in, in God's creation, um, according to their kinds, according to their kinds, and there's something, I guess, scandalous we could say in the Israelite mindset about those things that right def- defy categories or or smack of mixing. You remember, like you you can't mix different kinds of seeds in the ground or di- or different kinds of um, or different kinds of threads in a garment, right? There's an order, there seems to be like an orderliness that is uh, very essential to the way that the Israelites view the world and the way God created it. And so 
these animals that are not like that. It's not that they're not created by God. It's just that they they don't represent the kind of order that God um, created in his world, and that makes them um, scandalous and hence ritually unclean in the Israelite mindset. Um, recall back again, when, when we talked about this before, I emphasized that um, a lot of these things have to do with just the way the culture views them, not whether or not they're uh, unclean in themselves. And it's almost like a violation of conscience thing. And a couple of examples that I cited were like leaving Bibles on the floor, okay? Things that we recognize today. Or perhaps purchasing a house in which a person has died or, or been murdered. Um, things uh, Wearing hats in church. Okay, these are things that are not... Um, it, it, they're not wrong in and of themselves, but they're, but they have cultural meaning attached to them, where to violate these standards does nevertheless say something about you. It does never, nevertheless say something about its propriety, and we avoid doing them, even though we realize like they're not, they're not morally significant in and of themselves. Um, I, another thing, I was at a funeral yesterday, right, and. Had I showed up in jeans and a t-shirt, so inappropriate dress for certain situations, we still have these things, these quasi-moral taboos, and I think it's very plausible that the concept of uh, purity and impurity, uh, for at least for a lot of things that that are categorized as pure, would be categorized in the Bible as pure and impure, are very similar to those kinds of considerations. Uh, we also have uh, birds. What kind of birds can and cannot be eaten? Bir uh, here, the birds are, are... It's harder to find like an exact principle that covers all of the birds and, and why they would be clean and unclean. It does seem that some of them, such as the vulture here, um, it's their association with death. Although these things aren't explained, right? They're, they're like just assumed. Uh, here, we have winged insects are, are not to be eaten. Recall that in Leviticus, the, the explanation for which insects could be eaten was a little bit different, right? It was how their legs are put together. Here, it's, it's whether or not they're winged. Um, you, the Israelite also is not permitted to eat what dies naturally. So you can't just, if you find an animal that's just croaked on the, dead, on the side of the road, you're not supposed, that, that's unclean for the Israelite. It can be given to a foreigner, someone who is living in the land as a guest, uh, but who does not have a need to maintain the same standards of purity because they're not part of the, the Israelite congregation. Uh, that's permissible, but you, uh, but if, uh, if you want to eat meat, it has to be meat that is purposely slaughtered for the purpose of eating it. And then finally, we see this um, notion again, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk, a kid being a young goat. And this appears to have to be uh, uh, one of these uh, one of these commandments that we see that's uh, based on being humane towards animals and not doing things that are uh, scandalous and, and exceedingly disrespectful towards them. Um, there are other things uh, in in the um, in the law of Moses that kind of fall into that category, such as uh, taking a mother bird as well as her eggs. Okay, things like that. Uh, newborn cattle remaining with their mothers for a week before they're sacrificed, um, before they can be sacrificed. Um, so you do occasionally have those, and I think that that is the justification here, um, at least as far as we can tell, for the command to not boil a kid in its mother's milk. I note that this is um, 
part of, if not the major reasoning for the, the kosher standard of not combining dairy with meat, which does not uh, appear to be the, the, the thing that is truly motivating this command. At least it's hard, very difficult to see that in the text. But if you're wondering where that came from, uh, it is very much associated with this. And we find this command several times in the Law of Moses. Uh, some interesting stuff about the tithes here. So this is the the, the donation of the ten, of a tenth of what you have. Of course, most of us who give to churches <coughs> are familiar with this as a principle for giving. Uh, I do note that that the notion of a tithe is much more of an Old Testament concept, much more associated with Old Testament um, offering than it is with New Testament offering. Um, Although, as we often say, you know, that's kind of like a good place to start. You know, if you're thinking about like, how much should I give to the Lord? There's nothing wrong with that. And certainly makes sense to think of a, of a tenth. But it's not as like staunchly required. The giving principles in the New Testament are much more associated with free will, generosity, um, joy, compassion and love and things like that. Here, it's much more of a kind of a requirement. Uh, I don't want to say it's strictly legalistic because a lot of the, the idea is that the person who follows the law of God does so with joy and with love for the Lord in their heart. Um, but all that to say that that God explicitly commands tithes from Israel, whereas from us, um, the giving looks, looks different. Uh, but an interesting thing also about the tithe is that um, and this is often overlooked, but you see here that a tithe, actually you eat the tithe, okay? Like it's, when you bring the, the tenth of your produce, that's something that you're supposed to eat. Now it's, it should be shared with, of course, it's shared with priests and it's shared with Levites, perhaps shared with others, um, cause that's all, that's, that's a lot to eat, a tenth of your, your produce. Um, but yeah, so that's another dissimilarity with, thinking of our offerings in terms of tithes. It's not exactly the same thing. We don't go and, like, when you <laughs> come to church with your with your offering that's a tenth of what your paycheck was, you're not going out with it to the, to the store and buying a bunch of steaks and <laughs> grilling them up and then eating them, right? So it is a different concept. Um, if it's too far... If it's too far to to bring the animals and the goods that you would be bringing as, as a tithe, and note that this is part of Deuteronomy's emphasis on settlement in the land where the people are much more spread out. If it's too far, then, then sell them and use the money to purchase um, things to eat as, as a tithe celebration when you come to the house of the Lord. Um and then uh, I mentioned briefly the, the provision for the Levite. So provision for Levite is mentioned explicitly in the text here um, with the command that every three years your tithe is to be given to the Levites in order to sustain them. And uh, all right, so that's Deuteronomy 13 and 14. Let's look at Proverbs 9, 1 through 12. Uh, Proverbs 9, 1 through 12 is, uh, once again, we are, we are uh, looking at Lady Wisdom personified, and here she is having a great feast. She's built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. Beasts have been slaughtered. Uh, she's she's mixed her wine. She's set her table. She's sent out young women to call to the town. And who's invited to dine with Lady Wisdom? The simple, the one who lacks sense, Okay, the one who's susceptible to foolishness, 
but is also ripe for the learning of wisdom. And um, she invites the simple, come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine that I have mixed, that I've mixed, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And, and then, um, and then we start to get actually um, the first real taste of what I think a lot of us think of as proverbs. Okay, so keep in mind that where we are, um, we are still in. I think I guess we say I don't want to call it the introduction because we're in chapter nine, but it, this this section of proverbs it's more like it's about wisdom than it is a collection of wise sayings or wise aphorisms. These short, often two line. Uh, kind of pithy, um, wise sayings, right? That's what we usually think of when we think of Proverbs. So, so far, we've seen a lot of like the extolling of wisdom, but not a lot of stuff like that. Here, we start to kind of get into these things. So, and the first thing that we really hear uh, about in this kind of format is the idea of correcting a scoffer, okay? So, who are you issuing correction to? If you if you issue correction to a scoffer, then you're inviting abu- abuse on yourself. Know that it's not saying don't do it, but it's wise to realize that if you do it, um, you're, you might not have as pleasant a time as you would if you were reproving someone who is wise. So be careful whom you repu- reprove. But, but this is also advice, I think, for the, uh, for the hearer, right? Like, are you going to hear like a scoffer? And, and rebuke the one who reproves you, who offers you instruction? Or are you going to be like the wise man who takes it to heart and who increases in learning? So it's kind of like you could think of it as, you know, you playing uh, different roles in this scenario. Um, when you give instruction to a wise man, it says he grows still wiser. Uh, to a righteous man, he increases in his learning. Of course, the opposite being true for the fool or for the scoffer. Um, because the righteous person, the, the wise person, realizes that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And, um, <clears throat> and by wisdom, our days are multiplied and years are added to our lives. And so, uh, verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Again, this justifies us seeing... Uh, not only this this instruction being directed to the one who's offering the rebuke, the one who's offering the reproof, but also to the one who is receiving it, because it's saying if you're if if you're wise, who is going to benefit from your wisdom? You are. If you are a scoffer, or perhaps we would say a fool, someone who despises wisdom, and and may, gives a hard time to people who try to guide him, then you're the one ultimately who's going to have to. Uh, pay the price for that kind of attitude. All right, let's go to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. Um, Here Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. We've been seeing him doing a lot of teaching. Yesterday the teaching was about a lot about being ready, uh, being ready for the the coming of the Son of Man. And today uh, we have um, a different, different teaching here, this in response to people who approach him and who want to know what he has to say about these terrible things that have happened. And particularly, they, they tell him about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Um, 
so what's going on here? We're not exactly sure. Um, there's no event that we know of from like outside the Bible, like let's say from Josephus or something like that, that kind of uh, seems likely to be what this is referring to. But there are certainly enough events where, and that, that's fine, right? It's not like we have comprehensive knowledge of everything that happened in first century Palestine. Um, but uh, but we do have a, a lot of um, examples of the ways in which Pilate and the other uh, Roman government officials treated the Jewish people, that it was not beyond them to have uh, bloodshed, to shed blood, to kill people. Um, if if they had problems, and certainly we have records of, of several incidents like that happening, and then and this being a, a problem with the relationship between the Jewish people and the the Roman uh, governors, um, the idea of mingling their blood with their sacrifices. This it is noted, um, particularly um, in uh, I saw in Daryl Bach's commentary that this is most likely an an idiom to mean not so much that like you know, they, he shed their blood and then he took their blood and like mixed it in a cup with blood from a sack. That's probably not, what, this probably just means that he did it like while they had come for, to sacrifice. Um, so in that sense, he mixed, he, the two events occur together. Um, they, they came to sacrifice and they ended up being killed. And so that's, uh, but, um, at any rate, Jesus responds, well, don't think that, this happened because there were sinners and everybody, right? Like this is almost like a, uh, like a, you can imagine it being, they don't put it this way, but you can imagine like, why would God let this happen? These people come to worship God and Pilate, Pilate does this, or perhaps it was a, it's meant to um, get Jesus's opinion on how brutal the Romans were to them and kind of try to turn him and his teaching, get, get him to say something denouncing the Roman government or something like that. Jesus instead takes this as an opportunity to call everyone to repentance, right? Like his, and so one of the things that we should infer when we see tragedy, yeah, we have questions, it raises issues, but one of the things we should certainly take away from tragedy is unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. I don't think that means that, you know, if you repent and you follow Jesus, nothing bad can happen to you. I think the idea is that <clears throat> that um, there is a sense in which tragedy should make us think about um, the frailty of life and also judgment of God. Not saying that every tragedy is a judgment of God, but rather that life may be good now, but there are things that can happen that can change that. And will you be ready, to use the theme from yesterday, when those things happen, do you know that you are right with God and that in the end things will be, in in the end you will have joy in his presence? Um, and Jesus goes ahead and he gives them another, he gives them another example, right? This, this tower in Siloam, which is this area where water was brought from for uh, Jerusalem, uh, apparently made perhaps some kind of scaffolding or something has been suggested as well, where people, where 18 people are killed and the same thing, right? Like, uh, the, um, and this 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 teaches us like several different things. Like, not only does it make the point like to turn our eyes towards our own judgment, our own frailty, our own need for repentance, but also this idea that like it's it's wrongheaded to think that because a bad thing happens to someone that they're like worse sinners or something like that. So, don't 
be constantly trying to to attach or divine the significance of any one instance of suffering. Like, you're suffering because this is judgment of God. You're suffering because of this reason, because of that reason. Um, yeah, maybe sometimes we can discern a little bit about that. But number one, like, we often don't have that level of insight, right? Something bad is happening, and I know why God is doing this. Uh, so we should kind of shut our mouths and, and not try to speak in the place of God on, on a matter of which he hasn't revealed himself. But two, um, there's there's not really a, a ton of good that can come from that kind of speculation, right? That what we should really be concerned with is how our hearts are before the Lord. Are we in a state of repentance? Are are we right with God? It should be a moment of 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 self reflection. Um, then he tells a parable. He tells a parable about a man who plants a fig tree in his uh, in his garden, his his vineyard, and he comes at the vineyard, of course, also often being a, a metaphor for, for Israel. Um, you see this in particular in Isaiah 5. Um, but the man comes and he plants a fig tree, and, um, and the vine dresser, um, the guy goes and talks to the vine dresser, and he's pretty disappointed about the tree. For three years, it hasn't yielded any fruit. And uh, the, the vine dresser's like, well, give it another year. Don't cut it down yet. I know you want to cut it down. Don't cut it down yet. Give it another year. And of course, the implication being that for years, I have not found good fruit from Israel. I have not found good fruit from the people who are supposed to be the people of God. And um, and the time's not totally up yet, but it will be up soon, where I will um, where I will no longer wait and and tolerate unfruitfulness. And so it's a very convicting parable. And of course, the context here being Israel, but this could just as well be applied. Of course, the principle behind it, the way in which God operates, um, it could be applied to us as well, right? To a believer who doesn't produce fruit, um, or a church that has not produced fruit, that has not progressed in holiness. And by fruit, by the way, I, I don't simply mean the making of converts, okay? That, that certainly is a kind of fruit, but when we talk, for example, about the fruit of the Spirit— love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, right? Those things uh, are, are things that should be present in the lives of believers, and when they're not, then there is concern about that. And so the principle here being that the Lord does tolerate periods of unfruitfulness, but that toleration does not last forever, and we need to be warned about that. Um, so you can see the way in which that dovetails with this 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 teaching that Jesus is giving about the Galileans and about the uh, the the Judeans who uh, who died, um, right? That um, that the thing you need to be focused on is your own fruitfulness, your own faithfulness, and um, and don't spend too much thought, kind of like trying to analyze exactly why trage- certain tragedies happen. We're just not given that level of insight. Rather take from it what actually benefits you spiritually. Take from those things what actually helps you. Um, in one of these towns that Jesus goes through, he's going a lot of, through a lot of towns on the way to Jerusalem. He's, um, he's, in, he's in a synagogue. It's a Sabbath. And there, there's this woman who has, it's called a disabling spirit, as Luke puts it, and it apparently like bends her over. It makes like her whole body crooked. And here, interestingly, Jesus takes the initiative to feed, to, to heal her, right? He calls her to himself. 
<clears throat> he tells her she's free from her disability, and then he lays his hands on her and heals her. So he's <clears throat> he's the one who's instigating this, uh, which has the effect of making this um, this Sabbath controversy right about him and his actions and his decisions, not about her. So it's about him deciding to heal on the Sabbath not about her coming to be healed on the Sabbath. And the ruler of the synagogue is scandalized by this. And he tells him, you know, there's six other days in which you can heal. Okay? <laughs> Obviously, the silliness of it is, is apparent, right? Uh, in what sense does this work, number one? Number two, well, if, if Jesus is doing this healing, it seems as if God is, is, is behind him. As Nicodemus will say in John, um, of course, anybody who does signs like these, we know that they're from God, because who can do these signs unless God has sent him? Although, I wonder if a, if a ruler of the synagogue might be thinking about something like what we read in Deuteronomy today, right? That that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes doing signs and wonders and tells you to go after foreign gods, don't listen to him, okay? And um, and so, you know, somebody seeing somebody seeing... Jesus doing these things on the Sabbath might infer that because the, the their idea of what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath is so central to their religious identity, so central to what God wants of them. This guy can't possibly be from God because he's violating the Sabbath. But here's the thing. That all presumes that they're right about what God wants you to be doing and not doing on the Sabbath, that he would consider this to be work, that he would consider telling a woman you are healed and then miraculously healing him, like, is that really what God wants from you? And so there's this, just this idea that this this tradition, these this understanding has grown up around things, especially the Sabbath commandment, um, and is really preventing people from actually doing what God really cares about. Um, that's, that's the issue. Like, how, do you not do you not re have you not read in the law how you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself and you you think that that following the sabbath means you don't have to do that so there's a bunch of reasons why this objection is silly um and Jesus's uh Jesus's response is is exactly is is pretty much exactly that right like but it but he adds here now the the element of hypocrisy right because you yourselves if you have an ox you will help it out on the sabbath if it, if it gets in trouble or goes astray um, your your animals need to be watered. You do that on the Sabbath, and here's this woman who's a daughter of Abraham. She's um, Satan has bound her for 18 years, and she has the opportunity to be loosed from bondage on the Sabbath. Um, and and you're going to have a problem with that. And apparently, all it says all his adversaries are put to shame at this, and people begin to rejoice. So. Jesus's point, in fact, does get across, and this is um, one of the reasons why, when he enters Jerusalem, he will enter with wide popularity, uh, with a huge throng at his heels. Um, uh, we also see these uh, parables, like uh, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. Uh, these are uh, parables for the kingdom of God, kind of how they start. It starts small, but it works its way through the world and becomes um, and becomes huge, becomes this, this mighty presence. And finally, um, you have uh, people asking him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Those, I suppose we could say, who, are, who do not come under the judgment of God, but who are, who are vindicated in, on the last day. And Jesus tells them that, um, that uh, well, 
let's put it this way. Uh, you need to strive to enter through the narrow door because there's going to be a lot of people. There, there's going to be a lot of people who, um, once it's too late, once the master has shut the the door, once you know whether we're talking about death or whether we're talking about uh, the 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 end, the Lord has you know the Lord has has returned and and now is the time of judgment. There's going to be a time where 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 the opportunity for discipleship has closed, and there's going to be people knocking outside and trying to make a case as to why God should accept them, even though they felt no need to follow the one whom he has sent during life. And they'll say things like, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. I wonder if this is perhaps like the equivalent of, you know, we attended church, we did all these religious things that were expected of us. I mean, we're we're called Christians, um, but in fact, they don't truly follow Christ. They don't truly give their life to Him, right? They're 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 not real disciples, and um, and the response here is ju- that just because you're associated with Jesus does not mean that you are His. And some of those who 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 are like that will be told, "Depart from me, all you workers of evil." When the kingdom is established you yourselves will be cast out. Um, and But there will be plenty who do know, right? So it's not hopelessness, right? He says that who, who, plenty who do follow Jesus, plenty who, who, who are saved. Many will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. This is a picture of a, of a, of a feast, of, of communion, of eating together. And uh, behold, it says, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Those who seem to be the most religious um, may not, in fact, be the ones who are are invited to this feast. And especially in this context, this is talking a lot about unbelieving Israel, right? Like you would expect the the Pharisees and the lawyers, they would be the the ones most welcome at the table. Well, um, Jesus disagrees with this, and... Uh, tells them that there are some whom you would least expect who do become his disciples. And I don't think that this means that, of course, that um, that it doesn't matter what your response is to Jesus, that, that you don't have to forsake your sin, that you don't have to um, walk with him, that you don't have to trust him, uh, that you don't have to love your neighbor as yourself and, and be the good Samaritan, right? It's saying that those who actually choose to do this and pursue the life of true discipleship will often be those whom we would otherwise not expect, that we would otherwise not expect much from in terms of uh, religious devotion or, or, or devotion to Christ. So there is a call to repentance and to faith here. Um, it's just saying that those who respond in this way will sometimes be unexpected. All right, that's it for today. As always, I thank you very much for joining me. I can't wait to be with you again tomorrow. And until then, keep reading Scripture. Take care.